0: Last week in uh, Joshua, book of Joshua chapter 9, we saw this ill-advised treaty that Israel entered into with the Gibeonites, uh, even through deception. Nonetheless, the treaty, and we saw some of this last week, was binding, considered binding on Israel and binding on subsequent generations. We'll see some of the implications of that in this text. And and this text from Joshua 10, which was read this morning, is really the last battle described at any great length in in the book of Joshua. It's the beginning of what is known as Joshua's southern campaign. And we're going to make three points here. The alarm, uh, the response, and the sign. The alarm, the response, and the sign. So, First, the alarm. Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. Adonai Zedek, which means my God is righteous, uh, is the king of Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem's a a Canaanite city now. It's not under Israelite control. Uh, He had heard that Israel destroyed Ai and, and Jericho. And he also heard that Gibeon and Gibeon's sort of a central city in a federation of cities, he heard that Gibeon had made a treaty of peace and become allies with Israel. So he's heard two things. Israel's won a bunch of battles, a couple big, really big battles, and they've made a covenant of peace with Gibeon in this central federation of cities. And this means that Joshua has secured a whole swath of the center of Canaan. He's essentially divided the nation north, north from south. And so the king of Jerusalem is rightly alarmed. The text tells us that Gibeon is an important city. It's larger than Ai and that all of its men were good fighters. It's interesting in the book of Joshua to this point, we've seen sort of the range of responses that people can have to the the mighty works, to the grace, to the announcement of God's word. We've seen Rahab, who repents and embraces Israel's God. Who submits to his mighty, glorious grace and power. We've seen the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites want to make a deal. They want to use deceit for self-preservation when they hear of the word of God. And today, we see Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, Right? And he wants, out of fear and alarm, to fight. And so he gathers a bunch of kings. Uh, uh, he sort of forms an alliance from cities that are generally south and west of Jerusalem. And they move against Gibeon to attack it. So that's the alarm. That's the response, the attack that it spawns. Secondly, I want to talk about the response to this. So if you go to the text, you you start at verse 6. The Gibeonites, they send word to Joshua. And they say essentially something like this. Come and help us because all these kings have joined forces against us. And so what this is, is a call to Joshua and the Israelites to uphold the terms of the treaty that they had made with Gibeon. This is not the Gibeonites saying, hey, we need some help. This is the Gibeonites saying, you made a covenant oath with us. We saw that last week. That treaty that we made is not just that we'll be your water carriers and woodcutters, although it does include that, but it entails obligations on Israel to protect them. Thus it's called, in verse 1, a treaty of peace. This is part of the reason why, as we said last week, vows and treaties have to be studied and entered into carefully. And sparsely. Right, this treaty is something like a NATO alliance. The terms of which have now been triggered by the attack on Gibeon. Right, if Putin attacks Latvia or Lithuania tomorrow, we, meaning you and I, through our representatives, are at war with Russia tomorrow under the terms of the NATO alliance. And from what I've read this week, if someone tries to sabotage the Iranian nuclear facilities... We are now treaty bound to prevent that, which could get us into a number of other wars. Treaties tend to get out of hand and impose obligations. And so they have to be made carefully. And this treaty is triggered and God continues to use, as he does with us, he uses this sinful act by Israel, this mistake, this being snared in this deception, he continues to use it like he uses all the broken things in our lives for his redemptive purposes. Joshua doesn't ask any questions. He knows he's bound to respond. So he sets out on this all-night march with his elite forces, his best fighting men. And verse 8, the Lord tells him something that he's already heard, that the Lord has told him all the way back in chapter 1. Do not be afraid of them. Our enemies may be alarmed, but we are not to be alarmed. And God is always saying this word, do not be afraid to them, afraid of them. I've given them into your hand. Not one of them, he tells Joshua, will be able to withstand you. And so this, this is often the way God encourages us. That is not with a new truth. There's nothing stunningly novel about don't be afraid I've given them into your hand. It's exactly what God's been telling Joshua his whole life. Right? God doesn't, often doesn't use new truth. He uses the old truth freshly applied to the new situation, to our current need. It, it's, this is how wisdom works. It's knowing which part of the word of God in Scripture applies to your situation and being able to hear the voice of Jesus there God doesn't stutter but he keeps telling us the same sorts of things the same sorts of things and it'll always be the voice because this is what we need right we need God to speak to us we need to hear his voice And sacred scripture is the voice of God. We don't chase it down other places, but we hear it here. And that voice of Jesus talking to you in holy scripture is how God is going to encourage you in whatever straits you find yourself in. And that's what happens to Joshua here. God tells him, look, I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you this again. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I mean, this is how, first and foremost, God Fights for us. That is, he sends us into the battle and then he speaks to calm us down and give us perspective to tell us our inheritance is secure. But it's one thing to know these things. It's another thing to hear Jesus address you in Scripture with these things. And that's what happens to Joshua here. God confronts him. With his word, comforts him with his word. And this, this promise of the Lord, a comforting promise, it doesn't lead to passivity. It actually unleashes energy and ingenuity as we seek to implement it. That's what it does here in the text. The sovereignty of God, God saying, look, I've got the situation. You're going to, not one of them can withstand you. That sovereignty actually quickens human action. It doesn't undermine it. The the logic here is not, God has given me the land, therefore there's nothing I need to do. The logic of the text and the logic of the gospel, the logic of Scripture is, God has given me the land, let's get to work. And that's what Joshua does. Divine sovereignty, full human action. He responds and he devises this strategy. He's a military commander. He's a general. And the strategy involves an ambush to take the coalition of kings by surprise. And in verse 10, it says, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. Today we call this the fog of war. And Israel defeated them completely at Gibeon, the text says. And then the the battle moves south and Israel pursues them and cuts them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. Again, cities south and west of Jerusalem. So, I do want to note here as an aside, something important about the language of Joshua. You often see two sets of statements in Joshua and they seem to be in tension. On the one hand, you'll, you'll see statements that the Lord defeated them completely. He utterly destroyed them. But then you'll see that, oh, he just defeated them completely, but then they had to pursue them. Or in verse 20, it will say, they defeated them completely, but a few survivors managed to reach the fortified cities. So this is fairly common in Joshua. Complete total victory does not mean every last person was destroyed. It means something like a decisive blow was struck. And it's important to get that because some of the complete victory passages make it sound like everything was completely conquered. So you have this coalition. And they're fleeing before Israel. And verse 11 says, The Lord hurled large hailstones, whipped up a violent storm. He, he hurls hailstones down on them, and more died from the hail then we killed by the swords of the Israelites. So, we have to fight in the situations we're in in life. God sends Joshua to fight. You're treaty bound to fight. You're going to go fight. But the text always assumes, and here especially, that the Lord is the warrior, the main fighter. He fights through his people, but he's the main fighter. And the Hebrews, they were very fond of skipping all of the intermediate steps, all the secondary causes, and just saying the Lord caused a particular event. And so the Psalms, they'll depict the Lord as the one who who, uh, makes the storms, who speaks in the thunder, who sends down lightning bolts, who rides on the wings of the storm and such. Psalm 104 speaks of God's angels becoming the wind becoming stormy messengers of the Lord. And here it says, the Lord hurls hailstones down. I remember the the story that uh, one pastor told about trying to communicate this view of the world to his young son. He would say to him, God and his angels are directly at work in creation. Meaning, you know, don't be seduced by modern scientific explanations which assume that all that's happening out there is a bunch of impersonal laws. God is directly working immediately in the rustling of every leaf. And then one very windy day, his son comes home without his hat, and his parents ask him, where's your hat? And the boy says, the angels took it. Now, <laughs> who can argue with that? He learned the lesson very well. Right? We see a nasty thunderstorm as a collision between high pressure systems and low pressure systems. The Israelites say, the Lord threw hail down on my yard. We would do well, I think, to start to speak that way. It's not that we don't acknowledge the secondary causes. The Israelites acknowledge them. But we forget the first cause. We see everything. We've been seduced by the way the weatherman talks about stuff. That's not the way the Bible talks about stuff. You know, that boy was right. The angels took his hat. So the Lord is directly at work here. Notice how how many fronts he's directly at work in. He's directly at work in the military engagement because he threw the enemy into confusion. In the chaos of war, there he is. He's directly at work in nature because he threw down hailstones. He's directly at work in the the consciences of his people because he spoke to Joshua and said, Don't be afraid. And so he throws down these large hailstones. And these hailstones are fatal, they kill the enemy. Or at least a good number of them. For for us, of course, as moderns, this seems too violent. But it's because we have too sentimental a view of God. And that's uh, what Scripture, one of the things Scripture does, is uh, forbids us to create God in our own image. One scholar says here of this text that our Jesus always appears on the scene as if he's reeking of hand cream. But the Lord He's the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord of battles, the Lord of nature, and the Lord of history, the Lord of armies. And so we cannot adjust this. right? We can't tamp this down without creating some other kind of God. And so in verses 12 through 14, we get a summary of the day's events. This is the famous passage about the sun standing still for a whole day. There are a lot of interpretations of this passage. Um, I'm going to mention two, one of which is the popular one, and the other is the one I'm inclined to. Um, Though I want you to hear me, I'm not being dogmatic here. The popular view is simply this, that the sun actually stopped for a full day, which would entail the earth stopping, rotating on its axis, and about 50 billion other miracles Now, God is God, and he could have done that. That may very well be what what happened. That might be what the text intends. If it is, it's a greater miracle than the Red Sea, of which nothing is made in the rest of the Bible. Whatever happens here is not referred to after this. And, you know, there's popular literature out there which speaks of astronomers doing measurements and calculating stuff and finding the lost day. I know some of you, maybe some of you have seen this stuff. I can tell you this, you should be cautious with those claims. They're either false or unverified. I know of no responsible Old Testament scholar who takes them seriously. But in the popular evangelical world, you get this stuff all the time. There's a guy, he's got a website, he gave me this, he did some measurements, he found the lost 24 hours, he proved that the sun really stood still in Joshua. Well, maybe. Um, But the second view, and this is the one I'm inclined to to is here, is that this is a poetic description of the Lord responding to Joshua's prayer and petition and voice and fighting for Israel. Notice this about the text. Uh, The information about the sun and the moon is given in the form of a poem in verses 12 and 13. And the author, when he summarizes the day, When he summarizes this day, he's really not concerned with astrological phenomenon. He says in verse 14, The Lord listened to the voice of a man, and surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. We have language like this all throughout the Bible. About the sun being turned dark. And the moon being turned to blood. And it's clear on those passages that they are about the judgment of God on the civil order of peoples. Right? They mean something like this. God will put the lights of that civilization out. So Isaiah speaks of Babylon you know, going, being judged by God and he uses language like the, the moon will turn to blood. In Judges, in the book of Judges, we are told that the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. Nobody believes the stars took up weapons. In Habakkuk, the sun and the moon are spoken of as standing still in the heavens, as as here. Watching as the Lord goes forth as a warrior. It's a way of saying God is moving heaven and earth to do everything he can. Right? And the creation is watching. Cheering. The sun stopped to watch. While God went forth to fight for Israel. Now, if this causes you distress, by all means, you can believe the sun actually stopped for 24 hours. There's nothing wrong with that. And the end of verse 13 might support it. My own view has nothing to do with being uneasy with miracles. The text is crammed with miracles on any reading. The main point here is not the astrological stuff. The main point, believe it or not, this is a, a sort of a sort of an interesting. Uh, instructive situation for us, right? Um, This is a passage where everyone gets tangled up about the sun and how, how it stopped and how this could happen and how long it could have stopped. And the text actually tells us what the main point is and it's about intercessory prayer. Joshua speaks to and he petitions the Lord in verse 12. And the Lord hears or heeds his voice. You might say, well, That happens all the time. What's unique about that? Well, what's what's unique here is that the word listened, in verse 14, the Lord listened to the voice of a human being, is not simply the common idea that God hears our prayers. It's much stronger than that. And it, it occurs very, very rarely. The idea is that the Lord heeded, that he obeyed the voice of Joshua. And so what the text is trying to do is to strengthen and secure Joshua as the mediator, the champion, the captain, the intercessor, who prays for Israel. That's why this is a unique day in Israel's history. The defeat of these five kings and their petty kingdoms all in one day in answer to God, heeding and obeying the voice of Joshua. And the author's conclusion is simply, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. God fights for you. You know, sometimes in our lives it doesn't seem like it. We wonder about this. It seems like we're doing all the fighting and we're waiting for God to show up and do some fighting on our behalf. Or on behalf of the cause, if you will. But we need to be clear about this. God cares more about the situation than you do. Now, we often care about changing the people or the configuration of the situation. He cares about our sanctity and our conformity to the image of Christ. And this is a great part of the reason why we don't sense his fighting for us. We want the situation to be changed, the people to be changed, the, decks, the, cha- the, you know, the chairs on the deck to be rearranged, and God wants to conform us to the image of Christ. But he's fighting. He fights with you by, for you by speaking to you in Scripture. He fights in nature and he fights in history for his people. We'll come back to this. So that's the response. And the third point is the sign. And here we're beginning around verse 16. The five kings flee. They hide in this cave. Joshua says, put these rocks up on the mouth of the cave and let the battle finish. After the battle, the army returns to Joshua. He has the cave opened. He brings the five kings out. And then verse 24 says, he has his commanders, his military commanders, put their feet on the necks of the defeated kings. So picture this. The kings are lying flat on the ground, and Joshua's military commanders are standing on their necks with their feet, and they proceed to do it. This is what I've called the sign. This is a kind of parable, and it's meant to encourage the people of God. He tells the army, Joshua does, again, in language that he's already received from God, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This, this is what the Lord will do to your enemies. All the enemies that you're going to fight. So the feet on the neck is a kind of sacrament promising the complete inheritance of the land. The triumph of the people of God. And then in a bit of military humiliation, Joshua executes the kings, hangs them, Till sunset, takes their bodies down, throws them back into the, their cave where they were hiding, covers it back up with large rocks. Unsentimental. That's the text. I want to I focus here on three very practical things we learn. The first one is this. We already noted, we already noted that God spoke to Joshua before the battle. Back in verse 8. And he used words that Joshua had already heard from the Lord. God speaks the old truths of Scripture to us in the face of new situations and needs. And so sacred Scripture is the place we hear the voice of God. Jesus speaks to us. It's the embassy of the apostles and the prophets. And we need that. And very importantly, later in the text, after the battle, before the battle and after, when Joshua is administering the sign after the battle, he's placing the feet of his commanders on the defeated king's necks. He gives the army words of encouragement that he previously heard from the Lord. Notice the chain. The Lord spoke to Joshua. The Lord spoke to Joshua what he had previously spoken to Joshua. And then later, Joshua speaks to the army what he heard from the Lord. This is precisely what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 1 when he says that we can comfort others with the comfort that we've received from God. You must hear, you must hear the voice of God afresh in Scripture for yourself. Because that is how the risen Jesus fights for you. That's how he sends you into battle. But you also have to hear it so you can encourage your brethren here. You must hear for God for my sake, and I must hear from God for your sake. This is what it means to comfort one another. Being an encourager has very little to do with having a pleasing or a cheerful disposition. It is not, this is not about the power of being a positive thinking person. Remember Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking? I'm sure many of you remember him, a televangelist wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking, sold a gazillion copies. In uh, in 1952, Adlai Stevenson was running for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. And uh, he was speaking at a gathering of Baptists. I think it was in Texas somewhere. And he was told that Norman Vincent Peale, the famous Power of Positive Thinking preacher, had already told this group of Baptists that they were not to vote for Stevenson, they were to vote for his opponent. So someone went to Stevenson and said, Peel has already told these people not to vote for you. And Stevenson said, I find the Apostle Paul appealing. And I find the Apostle Peel appalling. (laughs) Uh, So Paul's encouragement the encouragement that you give to one another is not about positive thinking. It's just not not about morale boosting. You want to hear the voice of Jesus in Holy Scripture so you can then communicate that voice to someone else in need, in distress. So that's the first thing. The second thing here to, to, to learn is that, as we've regularly said, hopefully this is one thing. We can, uh, one of these, you know, sort of bedrock things we take away from the book of Joshua, and it's this. Jesus is the greater Joshua, right? Joshua points to Jesus. The land points to the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus is the greater Joshua. He's the mediator. He's the one divine human being whose prayers God heeds and obeys for the sake of the church. And so, the the point of Joshua's intercession in this matter of the sun and the moon is to point us to Jesus' current, fully human intercession and prayer for us at the right hand of God. That intercession, the prayer life of Jesus, guarantees that God is fighting for us, whether we can see it or not. Those prayers are always heeded. And all of our praying, all of our intercession, all of our discipline and our fitful attempts at prayer and discipline, they all hang and they rest on Jesus' current prayer life. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a relief, really. Fighting is hard. We quit a lot. You know, when you quit fighting, Jesus doesn't quit praying for you. He's interceding for you here I think it's helpful, and I've said this before, I think maybe in Sunday school, that that when we think of worshiping Jesus or praying to him, we tend to think of Jesus in heaven facing us, like looking down on us, which is a fine image. It's just, it's, that's Correct. But it's helpful sometimes to turn Jesus around and realize that he's praying for you before the face of the Father. And then he's gathering up all of your defective praying and your weak praying and your wandering praying and your, your, your half-baked worship and your all, of, all, of, all of the weakness and imper and, and you shelter behind him who's the forerunner and you come into God's presence behind him and he gathers your stuff up and presents you and your crummy prayer life before the Father perfected in his intercession. That's that's the importance of this, right? Is that it's not like, well, Jesus is up there and now I've got to pray. No, Jesus is turned around and he says, just get behind me. Get behind me. I'll fight. I'll do the fighting. All the fighting and all the praying you're doing hangs on my praying. And so much love does God have for us here that Jesus says, look, I know you don't know how to pray, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my own words in your mouth. Say this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's great love. This is God fighting for you. Always fighting for you because Jesus is praying for you. So third, the third practical takeaway here is, and this is on the curious matter of this sign, You place Israel's feet on the necks of their enemies. This symbolism here goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where God promised that the Messiah's heel, his foot, would be bruised, but he would crush the serpent's head. And so this is a sign of the cross, where Jesus' heel is bruised and he crushes the head of his enemies. What Jesus is doing at the cross is taking his foot and putting it on the neck of his and your enemies. And that's a picture of this here. And so, when it doesn't seem or feel like God is fighting for you, you not only have to, the comfort of Jesus is praying for you, but you look to the cross. Where has God fought for you? How is he fighting for you? Well, he's fought there. In that mysterious kingly victory. The Lamb of God slain becomes a lion raised and interceding for you. And now exalted, the Lord says to him, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. The feet in this text point to Jesus' feet. We need a new children's song. He's got all the enemies, under his feet. Or he's got the whole world under his feet. All things are placed under Christ and all opposition shall come under the feet of him who fights for us. He fights for us because he speaks to us in Scripture. He fights for us because he ever, leads to inter- ever lives to intercede for us. And he fights for us because he's been broken at the cross and bruised to crush us our foes. Surely it is in Him, crucified, raised, that the Lord fights, has fought, and shall fight for Israel and for us, the Israel of God. Amen. Amen.